Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Father, pray that as we look into this incident in Mark's Gospel this morning, Father, speak to us. Help us to find out more about him and love him better. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you were writing uh, your life story, I wonder what you would choose to put in it, what events you would have from uh, your life, what would be the key moments, the things that you couldn't miss. My granddad Harry was a big storyteller, and uh, he used to love telling his life story, so much that when me and my cousins used to be around him, he would sort of accost random strangers and start telling them of how he was a baker in Bradford, and then a policeman, and a hotel owner, and a gardener, and a singer, and it would go on for quite a while. Uh, so me and my cousins would normally sort of go off somewhere else. That was his story. What would your story be? We're returning this morning to Mark's Gospel after a long gap. Jesus is, uh, so Mark is telling Jesus' story. Mark is almost certainly acting as a scribe of the Apostle Peter, as he does it, writing it down for him, recording the eyewitness accounts of what had happened to Jesus. And he doesn't include every story, so we've not done that over Christmas, because he doesn't have the Christmas uh, parts of the story. Matthew, Luke and John give us more different parts of the story. But Mark has picked here key events, key points in Jesus' life to tell us about, to tell us about the Lord Jesus. And those stories are there to make a point. They're there to tell us something. He's chosen them very carefully. We've already seen by this point stories that he's told us Jesus being baptised by John, being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, calling his disciples, healing the sick, calming the storm. He's shown incredible authority over all areas of natural life. But this morning we're going to see his authority over supernatural life. We've seen it to a degree in chapter 1, but we're going to see now the true extent of his authority over things which are beyond our control. So firstly, we see this morning a powerless, strong man. Let me read to you the first few verses again. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped from the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Jesus and his disciples, to finish off the cliffhanger from last time, arrived in the land of the Gerasenes. That's part of a country called the Decapolis, ten Greek-speaking cities, independent from Judea. And they're part of Gentile, non-Jewish country on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. In other words, they're not in Kansas anymore. They've gone out of their normal area. And Mark immediately introduces us to this man. A wild man. A dangerous man. Who lives among the tombs, among the dead bodies, left outside the village. It sounds like he spent quite a chunk of his life chained up by people. But the chains no longer work. He's so physically strong, supernaturally strong, that he tears those chains apart. This kind of strength is not unheard of in the Bible. Think of Samson in the Old Testament. But here it's not the Holy Spirit that's at work like it was with Samson. It's an evil spirit at work. 
And it shows in the way that he spends his time. He spends his time cutting himself and screaming. Day and night, it says. As though sort of screaming through the evenings and the, the darkness of the night. I imagine it made this part of the area rather scary. This super strong man, wild, screaming, covered in blood from cutting himself. It tells us no one had strength to subdue him. The word subdue there is quite kind, really, in this translation. It's normally the word you'd use with animals to tame them. This man was untamable. He was like a beast, an unpredictable wild animal. Because this man is full-on demon-possessed, it tells us. And the demons recognise Jesus as he comes to them. So have a look at the next part, verses 6 and 7. Then he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down and fell before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The demons know who he is. Now it's worth pausing here for a second, as we did last time when we met a demon-possessed man in Mark, to say just a couple of points. First point to make is that Mark is not using demon possession to describe mental illness. That's not what's going on here. Being mentally ill is not the same as demon possession, and exorcism is not a treatment for mental illness. How do we know this isn't a mental illness? After all, some of the features are similar, aren't they? There's self-harm, there's sort of a psychotic breakdown. Well, there's three obvious reasons that it's not. Firstly, he's super strong. Supernaturally strong. Mental illness, self-harm, don't make you strong. They make you weaker, don't they? It doesn't work like that physically. Second, his awareness. The one who speaks knows who Jesus is. He knows who he is. Even better than the disciples do at this point. And he knows what's going on. So this man is not deluded. He's not coming out with strange things that are untrue. He's speaking the truth. Truer than he could possibly know without supernatural help. And then thirdly, the pigs, which we haven't come to yet. We'll come to them in a minute. But that solution would not work with mental illness, would it? You can't transfer a mental illness to a pig. It doesn't work like that. So our conclusion then must be that these are real demons. Real evil spirits who have taken over this poor man. Now evil spirits are rare in the Bible, but common in the Gospels. They only appear two times in the whole of the Old Testament. Think about that. Much longer book, but only two times. But they appear dozens of times in the Gospels. It's like the devil marshals all his troops to take on Jesus during his earthly ministry. He sends them all to go get him. But since the devil was defeated on the cross, his activity in that area has been massively curtailed. Evil spirits are still around, but they're not as active in the ways that we see here today. Certainly not in the West. But here is a demon-possessed man. And when Jesus comes ashore, he sees him, and the man runs right at him. Now, could you imagine that for a second? You just, you just escaped a storm, you get onto this land, you come ashore, and then a man comes running at you, who's supernaturally strong, who's blood-stained, he's got crazy-looking, running at you. You must be thinking, oh, I think we need a different job. I think we need to do something else. Maybe we could get a different person to follow. Because this is scary. We've chosen the wrong career. But what happens? The strong man stops when he reaches Jesus. And he falls down before him. That's normally what the weaker do to the stronger, isn't it? 
He doesn't attack Jesus. He yields to Jesus. The voice that speaks, as we said, recognises Jesus. Not just that, but he knows who Jesus is. He calls him the son of the Most High God. The Most High God in the Old Testament is normally how non-Jews refer to the God of Israel. Another reminder that we're outside of Jewish territory here. He calls him the son of the Most High God. And in the Bible, names have power. It's possible by naming him, it's a sort of vain attempt to try and control him or get in his good books somehow. But Jesus is having none of it. He will cast out this demon. The demon has not to be tormented. Uh, this seems to be a parallel request to being not sent out of the country. In the other Gospels, uh, they have it not sent out into the abyss, sort of precursor to hell. What they're being asked is to be not to sent to hell, effectively. It's a myth that devils and demons torment people in the afterlife. Actually, the devils and the demons go there for punishment just as much as anybody else. So the demon here is asking for mercy. But notice that the demon has shown none. He's asking for no torment, but he spent years tormenting this poor person. I say he, one demon, but it's not just one, is it? Jesus asks him for a name, and he says, Legion. Have a look at me, uh, verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. A Roman legion was between 5,000 and 6,000 soldiers. And from the events that follow, that's probably not far off what this man has in him. This man doesn't have just one inside him, but he has a legion of demons inside him, thousands. Jesus is facing here an army of demons. That's legion language as well, isn't it? An army. And yet, what do we see? They come and they fall at Jesus' feet. There can only be one conclusion. Jesus is stronger than an army of demons. Jesus is bigger than the gathered forces of evil that we see here. Which is our second point. A powerful, merciful man. Have a look at verses 11 and following. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the people of the city and in the country, and the people came to see what had happened. Jews don't keep pigs. There were no uh, uh, pig keepers because they were unclean animals. So no bacon, no gammon, no pigs keep, uh, pig keepers, no... Uh, um, what do we have for Christmas? Pigs in blankets, uh, except for these pigs, obviously. But they don't keep them. They're not pig keepers. And this is a reminder, again, that we're out of the normal turf for Jesus. This is out in Gentile country. But the demons have to be sent into these pigs, rather than be sent out into the abyss. Unclean pigs are good fit for unclean spirits. Jesus gives them permission, and they leave the man and go and inhabit the pigs. We're told that there are about 2,000 pigs there. And all 2,000 of them throw themselves, effectively, into the sea. Now this shows us three things. First of all, number one, the sheer number of evil spirits in this man. 
The other Gospels don't record how many pigs there were, but here Mark tells us. I found out this week that uh, pigs are not herd animals, that is they don't sort of follow each other like sheep. And they don't tend to stampede unless they're all affected by something. So a plane goes over and they all run away from the plane, but they don't sort of go together in a herd. So it's not that a few hundred are possessed and sort of make the other ones go off the cliff. It effectively means that 2,000 individual pigs throw themselves off this cliff. All 2,000 of them are possessed by at least one evil spirit. A legion, like I say, was about five or 6,000, so it could be they're actually two or three in each pig. A disaster on this scale shows us dramatically the sheer number of evil spirits in this man. And that might be why Jesus allowed them to do it, to let us see just what force was actually at work in this man. So that's the first thing it shows us, the sheer number. The second thing it shows us is the destructive nature of evil spirits. These things are so destructively evil that they drive a lesser animal mind straight to suicide. This man had thousands of these things inside him that tormented him, that caused him to cut himself, to live away from everybody else, to be hounded out of his home, evoking fear and terror in others. These things are evil, destructive, harmful. They're bent on causing chaos and destruction wherever they go. And these pigs visually demonstrate that as they destroy themselves dramatically by throwing themselves into the water. But then thirdly, it also shows us the incredible power and authority of Jesus. Imagine telling the story this way. Jesus, the carpenter's adopted son from Nazareth, gets off the boat only to meet a legion of several thousand destructive evil demons. A supernaturally strong man under their control. The demons cower in fear at Jesus' feet and beg not to be tortured. They ask Jesus if they're allowed to go into a group of nearby pigs because they can't do it unless he says so. Jesus versus thousands upon thousands of demons, not an equal match. Jesus is way, 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 way more powerful than these evil spirits. It's creator versus creature. It's God versus not God. Again, there's that repeated myth, isn't there, about the devil and his forces, and the God and, uh, God and his forces, that are sort of evenly matched, sort of yin and yang, two sides of the same coin, that are sort of blocked in an unwinnable struggle between two perfectly matched forces. That's not what the Bible says. God versus anything is not an even match. God versus everything is not an even match. Evil is no match to God. The forces of evil here are scared of God, not the other way round. Think about what it says in James chapter 2. It says, you believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And whilst the dramatic nature of this account might seem a bit alien to us, with all this talk of evil spirits, the forces of evil more generally are not, are they? We know that God versus all kinds of evil is still not that equal match. We may not experience evil spirits on a daily basis, to my knowledge I've never met one, but I have seen evil. I've seen the destructive effects of evil. And it may come with a less medieval-looking face, 
but evil is still here in our world, even in our own hearts. And that means that we still need someone who is stronger than the forces of evil, if there's to be any hope for our world. Evil still destroys lives and leaves people broken, externally by things like wars and violence and abuse and oppression, and internally by besetting sins that hurt others and addictions that can make us feel trapped and less than human. We still need something stronger than the forces of evil. And thankfully, this passage shows us that we have just that. We have the Lord Jesus, present with us by his Holy Spirit. He is stronger than the forces of evil in whatever form they may come, whatever size they might come in. And that gives us hope for our world, doesn't it? Here is one who can stop war and violence and oppression, who has promised that on his return he will do just that. Evil has an expiry date, and we can be confident of that because Jesus is stronger than evil. But it also gives us hope for ourselves, doesn't it? Jesus is stronger than the sin within you, within me, whatever it is. However unbeatable you think it is, Jesus is stronger. He's stronger than lust, than pride, than envy, than greed, than bitterness, than anger. We're not stronger than those things. And sheer willpower is doomed to failure. If you don't believe me, just see what happens to New Year's resolutions this year. How many of them are even kept by tomorrow? We need the help of someone stronger. We need Jesus. And I'm sure if we're Christians here this morning, we'd agree with that. But what does that actually look like? It's not like Jesus can physically beat up envy in our hearts or, or greed or anger. What does it mean then? Well, it means that we ask him for his help. We focus our thoughts on him. When we're tempted, we turn to him. When we fail, we repent and turn back to him. And he forgives us. For most of us, we're not released from the power of these things overnight. We're released from the penalty as soon as we put our trust in the Lord Jesus. But being released from the power is sometimes just one link at a time. Sometimes God in his mercy throws all the chains off. But for most of us, these things are there to train us, to keep turning and trusting in him. But for this man, it's all there in an instant. And he becomes, final point, a changed man with a mission. Let me just read to you the last section. When they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. If you have asked the people in this land what they'd have wanted, they'd probably have said stronger chains to bind the man. Or someone strong enough to come and chain him up for good. And you know what? Jesus could have done that, couldn't he? He tells us later on in the Gospels that he could have called on more than 12 legions of angels. He could have done that. 
He could have overpowered the man, chained him up with chains that no man, even supernaturally strong, could break. But Jesus doesn't use his power and authority that way. Instead of using it to strengthen his chains, he uses it to break his chains. Instead of binding the man further, he frees him. And this is the thing we sort of miss with God's power. Yes, he could show it in mighty acts of judgment, in smiting and wrathful anger. And sometimes he does, don't hear me wrong. But more often his power is directed towards the rescue of his people. His might is shown in mercy. His might is shown in the great redemption of his people. Overcoming evil, overcoming the devil, overcoming sin. All to rescue his people, all to rescue us. He is mighty to save. He is strong to rescue. And we see it not in the smiting of a demon-possessed man, but in his returning to sanity. In verse 15, he is sat there clothed in his right mind. He's a changed man. Here is someone who has passed from living death among the tombs to real life. But instead of rejoicing, the people in the region react to this uh, the same way that the demons did. They react to Jesus the same way that the demons did. They fear. They're afraid. The commentaries make a big deal out of them fearing the loss of their livelihoods. You know, all these pigs, if he keeps doing this, we're not going to have anything <coughs> to eat. But there's no mention of that here. It's when they see an untamable man tamed that they fear. What force, what power can do that? Sure, bigger demons might be able to beat up smaller demons in their minds, but what on earth can rid the man completely of this? Jesus didn't just half save him, he's back to sanity. And that is what makes them scared. Do you know, I think when people, when you talk to people, sometimes they're more scared that Christianity is true than that it isn't. That putting your trust in Jesus really will change your life. And that's why some people don't. Because that's far more scary than something like getting a hobby or just sort of dabbling with philosophy or religion. Here is something that actually works. Here is something that turns lives around like this man. Instead of wanting that, they want Jesus out. Out of their country, out of their land, away from them. And Jesus gives them what they ask for. Throughout the Gospel, we see that Jesus does exactly what he said in the previous chapter, in Mark 4. In Mark 4, 25, he says, The one who has, more will be given. And the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. They don't want Jesus, so they don't get Jesus. Their punishment is getting what they want. They love the darkness, so their light is taken away. But not entirely. The man who'd been possessed by the demon wants to flee the darkness too and follow Jesus. The language that he uses seems to suggest he wants to be one of the twelve, but that would make it thirteen, so it just wouldn't work, would it? But Jesus will not allow him. Instead, he sends him home with an instruction, verse 19. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. He's what you might call the New Testament's first ever missionary, but a missionary to his own people. He's not had any formal training, he's not had three years at Bible college, 
But this is his task. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And that's what the man does, verse 20. He goes around the whole Decapolis <coughs> telling him what Jesus did for him. Notice the subtle change there that Mark gives us. Jesus tells him to go and tell them what the Lord has done for him, God. Mark then tells us that he went around telling people what Jesus had done for him. People say that Mark is not strong on the deity of Christ, the godness of Jesus. Well, here it is. Jesus is the Lord who has done this to him. And the people in those cities marvel at what this man tells them. They're astonished, gobsmacked, speechless. The same word is used in Mark when the disciples see Jesus walk on water. The same word is used in Luke when Jesus calms the storm. The same word is used again when the disciples learn of Jesus' resurrection. But here it's used of a man telling his story of how Jesus showed him mercy. He simply tells the story of what Jesus has done for him. Now imagine not many of us will see ourselves as gifted evangelists, people who go out and tell people uh, the gospel. But all of us can do what this man was asked to do. Go home, tell your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. Sometimes we can make things very complicated that aren't, can't we? If we're Christ's, If we put our trust in him, then we have a story to tell. A story of God's mercy towards us in Christ. So you might not be able to do advanced presuppositional apologetic evangelism. You might not be able to answer every question. But all of us can tell our friends and family what the Lord has done for us. And how he has showed mercy to us. Not giving us what we deserve for our sins. Our evil slant but instead breaking our chains and offering us freedom. That was this man's story. One church I know has this as their mission strategy. It's not a bad one. They say, ask someone their story, tell them your story, and then tell them his story. Jesus, who came to conquer evil on the cross, who disarmed the devil, who beat death and offers us mercy and eternal life. So this morning, what's your story? Is yours like this man about the mercy of God? Have you met with Jesus and been changed? If not, then the opportunity is still there. Come to Jesus and be changed. And if that is your story, do you tell it? Could you tell it? Could you go home and tell your friends what the Lord has done for you? We all have a story to tell. Let's pray that God would use our stories. In the amazing way he used this man. Let's pray. Father, we'll thank you that Jesus is stronger than evil. Father, thank you that he conquered evil on the cross and now shows us mercy. Father, we thank you so much for that. Pray that as we share in the Lord's Supper in a few moments' time, that we'd remember that it is about mercy towards us through Christ. And Father, help us to tell that story to all who will hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.